Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast from Virgin Media News. I'm political correspondent Gavin Riley, joined in studio by news correspondent Richard Chambers. Richard, hello. Hey, Gav. And from New York City by the lady in red, news correspondent Zara King. Zara, hello. <laughs> hello, how are you? Uh, very well. Uh, moreover, how are you? Uh, and remind people just before we do get into it later in the programme, what exactly you're doing in New York? Yeah, so I'm here in New York for the UN High Level Week. This is basically where world leaders come together to discuss uh, our global problems and global solutions. And uh, today, as I speak to you, Simon Coveney, the Foreign Affairs Minister, has arrived and uh, we'll be expecting to hear from the Taoiseach, Neil Martin, as well later this week. Okay, uh, it is a fascinating week for the UN to be uh, having a big conflict because uh, there's only one obvious place to start with, Richard, which is uh, events uh, surrounding Ukraine this week, because it seems that after a few weeks where we were in a bit of a stalemate or maybe Ukraine was getting the upper hand, things have um, shall we say, escalated a bit. Yeah, we have had one of the most significant announcements by a Russian president in many, many decades. And it's actually the fact that there wasn't a stalemate is why he's been forced to do this. So Russia, uh, as of Wednesday morning, announcing a partial mobilization. I might come back to why partial yeah, okay. mobilization is quite interesting because it was anticipated that we'd go full mobilization. What this means is that 300,000 uh, Russian uh, citizens who are reserve uh, forces or people who have combat experience as in previously served in the armed forces are being called up now to go to Ukraine uh, to fight in the war. So Putin announced this as a result of what we've seen in Ukraine over the last week and a half, which has been Ukraine re-seizing about 6,000 square kilometres, pretty much an area the size of County Galway, uh, back in eastern Ukraine. So they're effective, they're being beaten back. They've been beaten back and it's been a massive humiliation. Uh, in the space of little more than a week, uh, Ukraine has seized more territory, uh, which has been occupied by Russia, than Russia had seized from Ukraine in the space of the last five months. Okay. Uh, so that is a massive, massive blow uh, to Vladimir Putin, how the war is perceived in Russia, because even uh, the Russian president's most ardent uh, uh, propagandists can't hide the fact that they've had to retreat a good way back, effectively as far back as the Russian border in some parts. So what Putin announced today is that there's a full or partial mobilisation of troops, uh, so they're going to be sent in. Uh, as well as that, there has been an announcement of two referendums in two of the regions uh, which are uh, currently uh, occupied by Russia. Uh, it's been described as a Russian-backed separatist, but it's yeah, effectively but it's, it's Russia. It's, it's, it's Russia. Okay. And that's why they're holding referendums, so they're, that they want to now be formally part of Russia. So the, the, this is what they did eight years ago, for people who can remember that far back, is what they did in Crimea. So, But for people who, who don't remember that far back, so basically they are now holding a, a referendum in the areas that they've seized, where presumably there are a small number of Ukrainian people remaining who are trying to hold out, but otherwise everyone else has fled. And they're holding a referendum of the people that are there, who are pretty much all Russians, mm. asking them if they want to be part of Russia. Yes. And you would have uh, Ukrainians who are sympathetic towards Russia in that part of the country as well, anyway. But um, the democratic value of these referendums has been pretty, yeah. you know, it's been scotched uh, over, over the years that they've done these. But the thing about this is, and why this is significant, and why they announced these referendums, is that once they become part of Russia, in Russia's view, Vladimir Putin says he will defend these territories as if it was Russia itself. So for Luhansk, read St. Petersburg. For Donetsk, read Moscow. Okay. And if he would defend them as they would, as he would the capital of, those, of his own country, 
That means nuclear weapons. Are on so the table. then, in effect, oh, I want to come back to the nuclear weapons bit because that's that's the that's bit that's going to yeah. the, the bit that, about that, nuclear that, disruption. That I'm yes. sure has exercised Simon Coveney as well. And I'm going to come to Zara in a minute about what Simon Coveney has had to say about all of this. So if Russia then says, right, this bit which has just approved the referendum now is ours, that means if Ukraine tries to win back the territory which everyone else sees as being Ukraine's to defend in the first place, Russia says, well, hang on now, this is different because no longer are we on war here. You're invading us. Mm. And that's where things get escalated. So where, where do the nuclear weapons come into it? He says that they will use whatever means necessary. He talked up nuclear, the nuclear arsenal of Russia, saying that it's more modern and uh, more significant than what NATO has. And he basically has said that Russia is fighting NATO uh, by proxy here, that effectively this isn't... And it's a way of justifying as well why they've been you know, kicked back 6,000 square kilometres across, you know, Kharkiv region is that they say that they're fighting NATO and not just Ukraine, that it isn't just Ukraine mopping the floor with a much larger neighbouring country in Russia. Mm. Uh, so effectively saying that, look, if you attack our country, i.e. these bits of your country, which we have now tacked onto our country, we may use nuclear weapons to defend them. And also that he's not bluffing, which is a, a phrase which might not stand the test of time. But if he says he's not bluffing, I suppose it means A, he was bluffing previously, but that B, he is prepared to go nuclear for this. Um, Zara, at the time of recording, you're not long out of a press briefing uh, with Simon Coveney where this news was, was fairly yeah. fresh. What did he have to say about it all? Yeah, so literally I've just left that briefing in the last couple of moments to talk to both of you. Um, look, Simon Coveney has said this is a very aggressive step. This is an aggressive development and he says it is a threat to world peace. He says that this is probably uh, the most significant development we've seen since the beginning of this war back at the end of February. Um, Simon Coveney is warning today that we're likely to see an escalation before we see uh, any sort of peace. But he also says that this is a threat not just to Ukraine but to uh, global world peace. He also speaks about the fact that there will be a UN Security Council meeting uh, here in New York tomorrow and that that meeting he describes as being he expects to be quite abrasive including uh, the foreign minister Sergei Lavrov the Russian foreign minister he will be attending that meeting and it sounds as if Ireland is intending to give him a piece of its mind. Um, this all comes at a very interesting time because as you say you were in, in, New York, in New York for the UN high level week anyway there's a general assembly this week now there's going to be a security council as well it, it's kind of fascinating timing that Russia would decide to escalate in this week of all weeks when the rest of the world that it says it's fighting against is kind of all in the one place to club up against it. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's something that Simon Coveney pointed to as well today, Gav, is that this is a very deliberate move on the part of Vladimir Putin, that uh, it's a very specifically timed uh announcement in terms of the fact that we're going to hear from President Biden here later today. Uh, also, um, Vladimir Zelensky is going to address the UN uh, remotely later here today. So the fact that this announcement comes on the day that we're hearing from the US President and the Ukrainians, uh, like, there's no coincidence here in terms of the timing of this announcement. Um, Richard, what's the long game in all of this? If, if this is like a really significant escalation at a time when they were being beaten back, like, is this a kind of, in some way you could think it's a final throw of the dice, but in other ways you sort of wonder, is he still trying to play, he, meaning Vladimir Putin, still trying to play a level of chess that the rest of us haven't caught up with? Well, there are a couple of different ways of looking at that. That if Ukraine has had unbelievable rapid success in seizing back lost territories from Russia, one of the best ways you can get them to pause and hesitate is to say, you go any step further, we're going to use nuclear weapons against you. That's a pretty successful tactic, probably, to, to do that. Mm. But what is interesting, and I, I mentioned it earlier on, is the fact that he's described this as a partial mobilisation and he had to defer his speech. The speech was meant to be on Tuesday night. For whatever reason, there was a hiccup there. It was delayed until Wednesday morning. They put on some opera instead, which is always a bit of a warning sign in Russia when on state <laughs> oh, <no>. television <laughs> an opera comes That's on. That's one leg again. Um, but that is interesting and that that appears to be a little bit of a hint that things are going very wrong 
for Vladimir Putin. And he seems to be a little bit worried about mm. how things have got, will go down if he announced a full mobilisation. That could be where the delay hey, came from. What's the difference? What is the difference between a full mobilisation and partial? Who's called up for a full mobilisation? Is that like conscripting the public? It's, it's the Vietnam War level of conscription. And that's why you have had over so the course of... So that's just random citizens just getting called up because we need you. Men of fighting age, effectively, you're going to war in Ukraine is what that would be. Um, but what has been interesting is that people are still anticipating the full... Uh, mobilization and that is why over the course of Wednesday mm. you have flights out of Russia being booked up you're seeing flights to Belgrade for example going up but 12,000 euros one way and people are willing to pay that to escape if they think that they could be sent to uh, effectively the killing fields of Ukraine uh, you have queues on the border with Finland uh, but this is the, the point I'm making about the fear here is if he is afraid that announcing a full mobilization would backfire on him like you can hear him even say, I stress this is a partial mobilisation. Is he now starting to fear the domestic audience on this might be turning? Or is he, or is, or is this just, you yeah. know, a, a stalling tactic? Because that, that has been fascinating because there's all those Twitter accounts that we've all become very familiar with in the last seven months since the invasion began. And they post clips, not always in, in full context, but they post clips every night of what they're saying in Russian state TV. And there has been a real marked change of tone in the last... 10 or 14 days that basically since Ukraine started to win back some territory no longer are they saying this is a glorious war and we're going to win and everyone else should just bow before us now they're actively voicing concerns about how their country is doing mm. and like so Russian analysts would point to is he A afraid of the public or is he afraid of the nationalist wing the really hardliners uh, and that he had to announce some level of mobilisation to make it seem like he's kicking this up a gear, potentially even to a nuclear conflict. That's something we don't think about much. We don't think about Vladimir Putin having to play to a, a domestic audience. An even harder line yeah. of person. Because we just kind of assume that it's a one-man state, that he can just do whatever he wants and that there isn't really a, a local like box that he needs to take for this sort of stuff. Yeah, effectively. But it, I mean, it is an admission that things have gone badly wrong and they have tried to hide this. In fact, or even over the course of the day, Sergei uh, Shoigu, who is the Russian defence minister, uh, in his sort of spelling out the details of all of this, he said that, well, we have lost 5,600 men in Ukraine, which is a vast underestimate according to international estimates. And even it's the about a tenth of the true number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But also... I don't think Russia understands that that's a bad thing to say to admit to. Say, okay, we've only lost five thousand guys, but yet a country which is much smaller than us is apparently pushing us all the way back because they started saying that oh, Ukraine has lost tens and tens of thousands. So why mm. are they saying that a much smaller country which has lost apparently a hundred thousand in casualties is now being able to beat a much bigger Russian force? It's all very muddled, and it is actually it's, this is the first time there's been any mobilisation of mm. uh, announced by Russia since the Second World War. So I mean, there is a huge significance right. to this. Um, Zara, we mentioned that this is going to somewhat um, usurp the, the agreed agenda or what we thought was going to be the agenda for the week. Uh, what was um, going to be on the agenda this week before Vladimir Putin made that speech? I was just going to say, before we get to that, Gab, I might just actually play you a clip of Simon Coveney that we just got in the last couple of moments there. Just uh, This is Simon Coveney giving his reaction to this latest announcement from Vladimir Putin. Well, clearly now what, what we've seen from um, President Putin is, a, is an escalation uh, in terms of uh, Russian uh, intentions uh, in the context of their war in Ukraine. Um, they've announced a, a partial mobilization, which effectively means that they intend to add about 300,000 people to their armed forces in the context of, of the ongoing war in Ukraine. Uh, that's not good news. Uh, it represents a significant escalation. And, and if, you, if you add that to the Russian intention to hold what can only be described as sham referendums in occupied territories in Ukraine, uh, to try to create some kind of uh, false justification uh, for escalating uh, their aggression there, 
uh, I think this, this signals um, a very unwelcome and worrying uh, development in the context of the war, probably the most significant development actually since Russia's invasion in February. Um, and so um, the timing of that is, is deliberately uh, timed for the UN General Assembly when world leaders are meeting here at the UN. So uh, this is obviously a change of the tone of the conversation here at the uh, UN High Level Week in terms of what the discussions are centred around. Originally, I mean, the focus was always going to be a big part on Ukraine, uh, separately global food shortages and also the global cost of living crisis. So uh, in terms of uh, where Ireland stands and all of that, will Ireland making a significant contribution, uh, particularly when it comes to the area of child malnutrition, an announcement uh, from Simon Coveney that uh, Ireland will be one of the major donors in terms of tackling child malnutrition and acknowledging uh, the impact that, that has. Uh, in fact, there was one statistic uh, given to us yesterday, which was quite shocking, uh, where they're saying that uh, one in five deaths in children under the age of five globally are now linked to child malnutrition. So there's a lot of international issues that are coming up. This is an opportunity for those world leaders to come and speak together. There's a lot of bilateral meetings taking place. I know Simon Coveney has numerous bilateral meetings, for example, happening today on the fringes of all of this. But um, in terms of what actually comes out of this, uh, President Michael De Higgins was speaking earlier this week um, and he was saying that, you know, he's, he's accused the UN of being somewhat of a talking shop, that weeks like this are a talking shop and that actually, uh, you know, we need to come up with uh, tangible solutions and strategies in terms of tackling these global issues. Let's just take a listen to what he had to say at the ploughing earlier this week. Year after year, the United Nations avoids dealing uh, with the structural issues that are standing behind the food crisis. We had an immense food crisis 15 years ago in 2007-8. And yet, in 2020, we allowed food to be part of the futures market on the stock exchange. We speculate on the food that is necessary to stop people starving. Yeah, yeah, I think this is something, I think Michael D has touched on something there, which I think a lot of us will probably have felt watching anything to do with the UN or even considering the UN over recent years. We had a global pandemic. The UN General Assembly was meant to do a vaccine uh, equity drive. Fell well short of that. Mm. Uh, it's decided to take up the, the mantle of climate change. Guterres, the He's UN... Been very vocal on Very good. Change. One of the yeah. strongest voices on climate change. But does it actually lead to anything? Nope. Mm. Why, what is the UN done to prevent the war in Ukraine or to try and minimise the impact of that? Nothing. Has it done anything about the Saudi war on the people of Yemen? Nope. What about the two-state solution for Israel and Palestine? Nope. You're not portraying a very successful record of achievement. No, and I do think that, but it's, it's, it is something which I think is, um, it's worth discussing. If you have these supranational organisations that we are all, you know, which are, you know, are held up as, you know, being the, the, the glue that binds countries together and prevents the resumption of, you know, world wars and mm. it's meant to see a symbol of cooperation on a grand scale. I don't see any of it. Yeah. Generally speaking, it is important that these people come together and meet. And I mean, I, I was at the same high level week and the UN General Assembly that Zara was at when we were at it last year. Mm. And again, there's a lot of talk from lifetime diplomats who, you know, go around in these circles and they, they talk about we achieve this, that and the other. But people, if people can't see any real impact to it, how exactly are you meant to consider that it's anything other than well, talking well, show? Look, maybe they'll surprise us and that maybe we'll be stung by the gap between taping and airing and that by the time people get to watch or listen to this, that it turns out that it achieved an awful lot. Uh, no doubt Zara will be covering it for our bulletins, but it's something, of course, we'll be keeping an eye on throughout the week.
Of course, the uh, the air path from London to New York is pretty well worn this week because an awful lot of the people who are attending the UN General Assembly will have gone directly from the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. Um, you and Zara tag teaming, Richard, because you were there uh, for the funeral and some of the the, uh, the pageantry over the weekend. Um, as an outsider, kind of who was thrown in, immersed for a day or two, like, do you sort of get wrapped up in the whole um, like the, the pageantry or the sort of the pomp or the emotion of it, or does it just kind of look like? a slightly bizarre ceremony where you're, it's all just a little bit kind of detached from reality. Well, it is bizarre. Some of the stuff is bizarre. I mean, you have things, when you have to say on the news that the Lord Chamberlain has broken his wand and has put it... Uh, <laughs> it's a sequence of words I never thought Yeah, of exactly. I, I say, mean, you know? so much of this is antiquated stuff. But um, it's actually, I actually found it was one of the most challenging things to cover as a journalist in a long time because I think that you have to give voice to the significance of what's happening. Obviously, our nearest neighbour has lost its head of state who's been there since, you know, for 70 years. Mm. A hugely significant figure there. You have the element of reconciliation in the Irish context with Queen Elizabeth II. But also I feel that audiences in Ireland aren't going to take fluffy kings and queens and princes and princesses walking around and just, you know, singing up yeah. that bit. So I was you, like... You can't just report a deadpan. You can't just be like, there's the Duke of Gloucester there now. You can't be, you can't yeah. be, you know, and you can't be like, you know, at a time of a cost of living crisis and you're you're looking at a, a crown and a, an orb and a scepter uh, <laughs> for much of the proceedings worth billions and billions and billions of pounds, no exaggeration. You have to give voice to that. And I think that's something which actually the media in Britain has actually struggled to do, bar a few noted exceptions. But the big thing I thought was that there needs to be context on some of it as well, that there are probably more people around the world who will take a negative view of Britain's monarchy than mm. a positive view. And there are legitimate grievances which are still existing about, you know, who owns those jewels? Yeah. And can we have an apology for, you know, the Mau Mau massacre, which happened while Queen Elizabeth was on the throne? So things like that, it makes it a difficult sort of hodgepodge of things to sort of bring together in one go. But a lot of stuff happening. A lot of stuff. It was a busy, yeah. busy weekend. A lot of stuff happening, including some celebrities skipping the queue or, or denying that they were skipping the queue and getting in a bit of trouble. Um, Zara, I know that you, you were around for uh, the immediate yeah. aftermath of the Queen's death and uh, not quite for the whole the, the whole pilgrimage that the queue became for a lot of people. But like the queue really became mm. a pilgrimage for a lot of people, which is maybe why people are so upset when they see others uh, acting out of turn or skipping the queue a bit. Yeah, and I mean, I think queuing is a very British thing. If you talk to British people, they'll say queuing is kind of, you know, they're sort of, they're, they're very good at it and, and they're sort of, you know, they take it very seriously and it's it's a very, um, you know, they take pride in their queuing almost in, in Britain. It's an interesting uh, phenomenon. We're not the same perhaps at home uh, about that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think in terms of people kind of, they felt uh, that they were doing their bit and they were getting into queue. I think when you saw the likes of David Beckham, for example, I mean, if you didn't already kind of love David Beckham and think that he was actually kind of, you know, quite an endearing character, I think people really, you know, sort of were taken by the David Beckham thing seeing him in Man the queue Did he queue, was it like 12 hours or something in the end <laughs> He well, yeah, look, okay, yeah. fair enough. Like, you can be cynical <laughs> and say that. But obviously, like, you know, his take on it was that, like, this was a family thing for him, that his grandparents had, you know, loved the, mm. the Queen and that, you know, if they had been alive, they would be there or whatever. So, look, obviously, that's what he said. So, we take him on face value. Uh, in terms of, we are talking, obviously, about Holly Willoughby and Philip Schofield here. Um, and, you know, they are absolutely the sweethearts of the of the British public, or certainly they were before all of this, you know, uh, this morning, not to be, you know, over the top about it, it is, you know, really a beloved television programme in the UK, uh, even here 
here at home in Ireland. And I think that people, you know, absolutely would have probably expected better from from Philip and Holly. They are held to probably, possibly a higher standard. Um, so to see them in a situation where uh, they were deemed to be skipping the queue, and I think, you know, let's let's be frank about it. They, they like I mean what do you think they did skip the queue I mean like there's no point I don't know if it was just a statement saying they didn't and and they had you know obviously as journalists they were able to kind of get in you know a different route and they didn't actually was it they said in the statement that they didn't actually get to go past it that they kind of stood further back yeah, or something yeah, this, so this, their, their contention was that okay yeah, or, they, they weren't trying to go yeah. through and file past in the same way as everyone else was they were there to sort of report from the room and ironically a lot of the other media outlets that are now panning them for having skipped the queue the reporters that knew that they were there well, are also the, the same the same reporters that use the same privilege to skip the queue in the first place. No, I'm going to call a stop to this because yeah. there's a bit of a difference between okay. reporters who were there uh, and who did report on the queue and Holly and Phil who said they were there to report. So I was going to ask you that. Yeah. Mm. Did they? They didn't actually do any... Did they do any filming then? Like they did when a VT. They there was, a, was there uh, any reporting? There was from? a VT and the, the big... The non-apology apology was out on this yeah. morning. Uh, I think it was on Tuesday morning. Or maybe okay. been, uh, yeah, because uh, it, yeah, it was on Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning, yeah. Uh, they they put it on, and oh, it was right. all like we were there to cover this as journalists and all that sort of stuff. There was no evidence that they covered it as journalists. Like the queue was over. Why so would any, they be reporting so on any, it after any the fact? Any material that they harvested from their reporting on the scene ended up not being aired. So this contention that they weren't trying to express their condolences. Well, like whether or not it's it. legitimate, the, the public yeah. isn't buying it. Is the problem for them? One thing I find quite yeah. uh, odd about the whole thing, Zara, is that the the uh, complaints that there are from people who think that everyone should be in the same line, that there shouldn't be any express privileges for anyone, there shouldn't be a VIP queue, everyone should be in the same line. And they're saying that while queuing up to pay homage to someone who was never in the same line as anyone else throughout any of her earthly time on this coil. Yeah. I know, but like, see, look, she's the queen. Like, that's how British people feel about it. It's different, you know what I mean? And I think that, like, you know, the death of the queen is almost kind of a great leveller. And again, I think, look, it's probably unfortunate for, for Phil and Holly that David Beckham did queue. I'm going to be honest. I think the fact that he was such a high-profile queuer that I think the juxtaposition, because wasn't it like the same day or the day after that Holly and Phil were photographed then going in? So I just think, I actually think the David Beckham thing kind of screwed them a little bit, if I'm totally honest. What do you reckon? Uh, I think so. Mm. And also a little bit that um, Susanna Reid, who I think yes. is the presenter on Good Morning Britain, another one of their ITV colleagues, was also seen as having queued with her mother like a civilian and had stayed out there overnight and been out there with her her soup and bovril overnight or whatever okay. else it was. So it does kind of, yeah. when another ITV colleague is is going through the civilian motions, it does undercut you a little bit. Um, Just the thing on the queue though, the queue thing, um, like I was speaking to people who were queuing and they were there for days and they st stuck around for days for the funeral and all afterwards. Like for people who went, it was a very solemn thing. It was a very emotional thing. And like they sort of viewed her as the nation's grandmother in a way. And it reminded them of other par parents and grandparents that they lost along that time who they might have memories of, you know, sitting down at Christmas dinner to watch the Queen's speech for. Yeah. But the overall number of people who actually went in the queue was apparently significantly lower than was expected. Yeah, so it's estimated that 300,000 people queued mm. up for her father, George VI, but that only around 250,000 queued up for Elizabeth. And this mm. despite the fact that you could see Elizabeth overnight, that George was only open during daylight hours and Elizabeth was there for 23 hours. And also, amid all the estimates, this might have been the most TV-watched event in the world, 
that actually more people in Britain watched the Euros final last year against Italy than did the funeral itself. Yeah, they're, they're, they're like the TV figures are always very oh. hard. TV figures are always very hard. I remember I said you were on the Tonight Show on Monday night, mm. and uh, I pulled out that, that somebody said there, there, it was 4. a point one billion. Somebody said might watch it. Yeah, and that was widely reported, and I, I told you it was bunkum, mm. uh, and that to immediately discard any estimates of that because it is it's complete nonsense. So you think in, in the, the more than half of the world's population is sitting to watch it live, and that's what the quote was: was live. that they'd be watching yes. it live, doesn't matter what time of the day it is in whatever country, they're sitting up to watch a foreign queen's funeral. It, the only way you could possibly stretch it would be if it was through news coverage or catching bits of it on social media. Mm. 4.1 billion people watching a thing live ain't going to happen. There was a bit such of the Sean Spicer's Trump inauguration. Most watched royal funeral, period, Zara. Yeah. Well, I know in here in New York when I got here on Monday night and I was looking at a lot of the local coverage, so all the like channels on the in the hotel room were actually all local New York news and it was like the absolute top story here, obviously. Totally. But it was more so they they had a lot of ETs about people who were gathering in New York at six o'clock in the morning, like to watch it. Mm. So actually there did seem to be sort of like viewing parties happening here in New York. I suppose like obviously a lot of people from the British community living here, but like it did seem like they was definitely like the oh, US Americans loves love the Royals totally. anyway and obviously they love it. Like they do love it. Yeah, they but go, they go wild I did for think Lord looking at the coverage here in New York specifically, yeah, they love it. Like they really went all out. But but it was interesting to see some of the VTs talking about those people who were getting up at six o'clock in the morning to watch it here. Like so, there definitely was a huge interest. But again, yeah, as you say, the US is a very specific niche market for the Royals. Yeah. Um, I think it's interesting, Richard. Like when you talk about. Um, you know, it is strange for us, isn't it, as as Irish reporters to kind mm. of talk about the certain traditions and things. And actually, I think probably as the time went on, because it was, what was it in total from the time the Queen died till she was buried in the end? Was it like, I think that if, four, if you count days? the day Thursday that she died Monday. is day one. It was 10 days in the morning for the big 11 days. or 12, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Like, I suppose the longer time went on, you had more time to think about, as you said, exactly that kind of the wealth and everything and the sort of, you know, the, the luxury of, of royal life sort of in a lot of ways and the trappings of that. And it, it shone a light on that that probably hadn't been there for a really long time. And as you say, kind of, you know, wheeling out sort of the, the crown jewels, for want of a better word, and, and kind of, you know, all of the, the finery that was actually, you know, as the days went on, you know, and particularly in the middle maybe of it when the lull period was kind of happening, you had a lot of time to think about that sort of um, wealth and that kind of, you know, it's just so far removed from what we would be used to back home. Uh, there's plenty of domestic news that we need to get onto as well. But just before we end up moving on to that, um, Richard, you, you uh, came to us with a little bit of breaking gossip tidbit about where Prince Charles' first overseas visit might be. And although Prince Charles seems to love coming here and wants to try and tick off every single one of his counties, it may not be as easy now and uh, now that he's got the crown. But that his first visit is to a country that his own prime minister might not be too fond of. Yes. Prince King, oh my God, I'm still going to do it. I'm still keep, I can't. We're going to be doing it for years. <laughs> Sorry, folks, so it's just going to be Prince Charles until, until his coronation. I'm going to call him <laughs> Prince, Prince Charles. Uh, it has been reported across the British media that King Charles' first foreign visit will be to France. And that is interesting because Emmanuel Macron has been uh, effectively portrayed as a villain uh, by the you know, by elements of the British press and by the new Prime Minister. Uh, Liz Truss, who decided that it would be a wise thing to say as part of the leadership hostings that uh, she hadn't decided or the jury was still out as to whether Emmanuel Macron was a friend or a foe of Britain, which is a mental thing to say about a country which is 12 miles away. If that's the place that he's chosen to go for his first visit, then it kind of raises the question of whether the king is doing a bit of freelance foreign relations, kind of outside of the government's agenda. Yeah, because of course, you mean, the monarchy and you have the the British government or His Majesty's government, um, to use the official sort of title, you kind of have a linked foreign policy. You don't do one without the other, but 
if King Charles, because apparently he bonded with Emmanuel Macron over environmentalism, classic Charles, um, that's why he's going. He's like, I'm go- I like this guy. I'm going there. That's Liz Truss might not like this person, but I'm still going there, which is just very interesting. It's an interesting dilemma, especially because Macron was absolutely panned over the weekend and on Monday by the British press for wearing trainers into view the Queen's How coffin. When dirty. he didn't, he changed yeah. out of them. Uh, and that he was, um, you know, walking around the streets of Britain uh, or London, just, you know, swanning about incognito. And they were just saying that he was going to throw a hissy fit <laughs> over where he was sitting in the, in the Abbey. That he was incognito. I don't know why was he they wearing, hate this man so much. Was he wearing a comedy? moustache that he was going around incognito as the president of France. He was wearing aviator sunglasses and a little scarf. That, that, that's almost a <laughs> Meghan Markle level of disrespect. How yeah. very dare he. Uh, plenty of domestic stuff that we do we have to get actually, to. Sarah, go ahead. Yes. We, sorry, just say, we actually passed Liz Truss on the street yesterday in a really like narrow street coming up from the UN. And like she had actually gone past us, myself and Ronan and my crew here, before we kind of even realised it was her. So like it seems a little bit here in the UN, it seems to be a bit of a great leveller. Nobody gets dropped at the door. Everyone's kind of got a schlep down mm. the road out to the UN. So we did pass her here yesterday, actually just walking about. Likewise, last year, I, I was buying a toothbrush in New York just after we arrived and I was sleeping my eye and all that sort of stuff. And <laughs> Boris Johnson was outside the Dwayne Reed, just stumbling by, ambling by, yeah. looking dishevelled at 11pm. And I was like, wow. This is UN General General Assembly week. This is what happens. At least he's not playing a character. He's just that bumbling and dishevelled looking all the time. Uh, I like at least that Zara recognised Liz Truss, even if the anchors of Nine News in Australia didn't, uh, which is a clip we might point you to at some other point. Uh, Plenty of domestic stuff as well, which we're going to get to in just a second. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So there is a lot of news uh, here at home and obviously we're looking at one of the busiest news weeks uh, here domestically, which of course will be the budget being announced next Tuesday. Um, in the run up to that, there's been a little bit of um, agitation in the opposition and in the broader public about the idea of ministers getting their fancy cars back. Mm. I wanted to on? ask you about this because I, I saw it, I saw it uh, reported um, that the ministerial guard cars will be back and the security justification was given for it mm. um, being that, you know, there is a heightened you know, personal security risk to ministers at the moment and there has been for quite some time. But obviously, at a time of a cost of living crisis, the idea that you're going to have fancy cars driven around, you know, for ministers exclusively at their leisure effectively would jar with people. So I wonder. I wondered why the genie was put back in the bottle, Gav. Well, a debatable thing is whether the genie was, in fact, mm. actually put back in the bottle because we were reporting this on Tuesday morning as were a few other uh, newspaper outlets that it was going to be brought to Cabinet for to let them know this was going to be happening. It's been disputed since as to whether it was actually brought to Cabinet and needed to be signed off on, whether it does need to be signed off on by Cabinet. In fact, just not long before I came in here, a government source told me that, in fact, the government has nothing to do with this, that if the Garda Commissioner decides you're getting a car, that's it, you're given a car. Oh. And 
there's nothing else to consider it. But would that not then, so when the government, previous government decided we're getting rid of all this, does that mean that that wasn't a government decision then? Uh, yeah, well, it, apparently it was a government decision at the time and people might remember that when Simon Coveney stood down as Taunashta but remained on as Minister for Foreign Affairs, apparently Leo Varadkar made a case that she, he should be allowed yes, to keep his car and driver uh, and that was the case. So it's always been so, slightly woolly as to whether the government get to assign themselves cars or whether it's done on the security basis. Either way, the thing which, which people are trying to stress, and we're going to play you a clip of Michal Martin um, talking about this at the Ploughing Championships, he says that this isn't, despite the, the unfortunate timing coming in the middle of a cost of living crisis, this is not the government trying to make their own lives more pampered. He is insistent that there is, in fact, a security basis for this. Again, that, that's not a cost issue. I mean, that's, you know that's a security issue. Well, I'm not saying it. Well, people are saying it. Yeah, but it, it, the government didn't start this. A lot of ministers don't want to return to guard drivers. They're quite happy with the civilian position that they have, which costs as well, by the way. So I'm not sure what the net cost between transitioning from where, where ministers have civilian drivers to Garda drivers. But the Garda Commissioner is adamant. You recall there was a review done in terms of vulnerability of politicians to assault, attack, and so on. So this is a security matter. The Commissioner is adamant in the security advice that's been provided to me that if this isn't done, there's a risk to senior ministers and that, that's the bottom line behind that. So Gab, what exactly is the specific threat that they're looking at here? Uh, that much we don't know because the guards uh, famously and we've all been in plenty of touch with, with guard press offices over the course of our careers and they'll always tell you they don't comment on operational matters um, so they won't say if there is a specific isolated threat that they're identifying or whether there's a specific trigger that's prompted them to look at this but we did see some of the unsavoury scenes outside Leinster House on the first day back of the Dole the Wednesday of last week yes. where, where even some TDs from more left parties like people for profit were getting harassed outside the gates and ordinarily if there was time where there was unrest, people for profit would be the voice of that unrest rather than being the target of some of that unrest. So Ebony, we're living in a slightly more straitened climate. What's kind of unfortunate about it, and this is the real political nub of it, is that um, many people would say, well, if the government was doing its job properly, they would argue that there wouldn't be any threat to them and that therefore they are almost getting this as a reward for their own unpopularity. Now, mm. I don't buy that because I think... I don't buy I don't know if I buy that actually because I think you're always going to have people who aren't happy you can't keep everyone happy that's just the nature of life itself Well one thing that struck me about all of this is that um, if you remember back to like the, the last time that there was real such such tangible public anger which was the austerity era around the bailout and then when the, there was a general election in 2011 and that government decided to get rid of almost all of the state cars that Michael Noonan and Brendan Howland as the ministers for finance and public expenditure were responsible for an awful lot of hardship they would argue unavoidable but there was never any security threat to them where they needed to have guarded cars and drivers. Um, you know, Phil Hogan, in the midst of all the water charges stuff and Alan Kelly afterwards, never needed guarded drivers. So the assessment that there might be such public hostility out there now, that it's warranted now when it wasn't even back then, is in itself pretty striking. Well, the thing I want to say is that I think that there's a big, clear difference in what happened then and the type of protest that was there with the type of protest which they're mm. particularly concerned about now. So on the day you talk about the, the, mm. the situation outside the Dáil and that it would have been previously you would have seen, you know, perhaps, you know, people before Profit TDs were out there as part of that. It's a very different type. Yeah. It's a very different thing. Yeah. Uh, you had TDs and all that I sort of stuff. We... Go ahead, Zaria. 
No, I was just, I was just going to say that I actually, because like we will remember, like obviously I worked with you, both of you at that time, actually around the height of the water protest at that time. I remember we worked for one organisation that had to like lock the front door for a couple of days at a time. We were all being brought in through kind of the back door and through garages. There was like an anger out there towards politicians, towards the media. Like it was a very hostile time, but there's a different undertone, isn't there, to what we're seeing happening at the moment? Yeah, very much so. And you had, I mean, TDs being called traitors and murderers. Uh, Paul Murphy was kicked in the shins. You had Breed Smith, you know, effectively just had been people roaring in her face as well. And you've had ministers had this as well. I actually asked Micheál Martin about this um, the other day when he was opening that pennies in, in Tala um, of all settings Sorry, for that's, it. That's just some sequence um, of words to throw in in the middle uh, of a But he was sort of saying that he is concerned about particularly the rise of the Irish far right. Mm. That this is something which has flown under the radar and you've had... Uh, you know, there's a lot of hand-waving about the, the rise of far right influence in Ireland when it's plain to see... And mm. if you ask actually people who are involved in A, monitoring fringe and conspiracy groups yeah. and TDs and ministers themselves, they'll tell you, we've had threats against our lives from these people. This is a very different place and you can't deny this anymore. Yeah. I think what, what's what's unfortunate about it though is that through one means or another, this all became public seven days yes. before the budget. And this is a budget in which people are placing so much stock in which the government has promised to try and address so much where it's probably going to be spending in the guts of around 10 billion euro on both cost of living stuff and in general expansion of state services anyway. And for them to be seen at a time when people feel like they're cut, they're being cut, for the government to be doing something which inadvertently rewards itself or makes its own life that little bit more luxurious uh, is really bad optics. Uh, speaking of which, uh, there was also significant news this week around pensions, which may not be a very uh, attractive topic, I'll admit, for people uh, of our standard demographic, people who might be of similar age to ourselves, who might think, sure, it's going to be a long time before we're, we're looking at pensions. But the fascinating thing about this pension story, which, by the way, was that you will now basically uh, acquire a bigger state pension for the mm. longer that you work up to age 70. The more years you work, mm. the higher the rate will be. They have no idea how much it's going to cost. So they decided they're going to pay for this by raising PRSI, which means that you're going to actually be paying slightly more out of your paycheck every month or every week or every year, whatever it might be, and that that's going to fund the higher pension. But they actually don't know what that's going to cost, which is fascinating because, Richard, you were on Fine Gael's trail for the general election in 2020. You were following Leo Varadkar around for, for three weeks, and you would have seen firsthand how much stick they were getting over yes. the pension age. And they were making the case at the time that we couldn't afford to leave the pension age at 66, that it had to keep rising because people were living longer and that we couldn't afford to pay them the pension for, for as long as they might be alive. Yeah, and I think that this is going to be one of those ones where the government ends up tying itself in knots and opposition parties as well will tie themselves in knots trying to justify their particular stance on it. Mm. And it just creates a lot of emotional and ill feeling. People deserve to have security once they finish work and people should be allowed to finish work and have a comfortable retirement. And it is one of those demographic things where that is going to be, the, the solution to it perhaps isn't as straightforward as it might have been 20 years ago. So I think that it is going to be one which is probably going to bite them again. Uh, it's going to be uh, fascinating. Um, Zara, uh, with a, a certain level of remove, um, because I accept that I'm, I'm in something of a Leinster house bubble and I get to see some of the, the horse trading or some of the, the speculation coming out in real time. And a little bit of remove because you were in London and now you're in New York this week, but obviously you're still ingrained in the story. Yeah. How much pressure do you see the government is being under for the budget next week and, and all the, the boxes that they have to tick? 
I mean, look, we've come as far as New York. I think it's still going to be a question that follows the Taoiseach to New York tomorrow when we get a chance to talk to him properly about this. I mean, the reality is the cost of living crisis, it dominates discussions here at the UN General Assembly. It dominates discussions back home. The reality is that what people have left in their pocket uh, after they pay all of their bills at the moment is the number one problem for individuals. And when you get that close to home and it becomes that personal, it's inevitable that it's going to be a massive thing in terms of overshadowing that conversation. Um, I suppose just in relation to that pensions uh, situation as well, Gav, it was interesting because I suppose there's a real mix and a real divide between people who uh, are in the position to retire at 65 and those who want to continue on working and that's the real divide there. Yeah, I think it was fascinating. I was at a press conference yesterday with a retired nurse who was about to turn 70 and she said, like, my line of work would not have ever allowed me to consider working 40 hours a week up to my age that I'd be in worse nick than some of the people on the trolleys that I'd be wheeling around of, of patients who need uh, hospital care. And of course, we say all of this in the advent of a potentially huge cost of living protest in uh, in the centre of Dublin this mm-hmm. coming Saturday, which we may talk about uh, on next week's episode is providing a very tangible backdrop. So evidently, mm-hmm. there'll be an awful lot of stock put on the budget and it's something that we absolutely will talk about in more detail on next week's programme. Uh, of course, one of the other big stories domestically this week, Richard, is the return of the ploughing. The ploughing match, which hasn't been on for three for three years, which probably gets dismissed a lot by more urban uh, viewers or listeners uh, as not being something of relevance to them. But actually, like for a lot of people in Ireland, the ploughing match is a pretty big deal. Big deal. It's a real pulse I'm, check. I'm raging. I'm missing the ploughing. I want to see you and your wellies again next time around. We're definitely sending you down. Nicole Gurnan got the privilege this week for us. Uh, but Richard, like, it's, it's a huge deal. So for, for those of us who, who don't appreciate how much of a deal it is or what it represents, give us a potted history of it. The Ploughing Championships isn't just about the ploughing. It's about meeting people. It's a real sort of smashing together, a collision of different groups, business groups, farming groups, food groups, you know, all of the supermarkets and all that pitch-up shop there now. So do all the banks as well which people probably have various takes mm-hmm. about as well, but politically as well. You'll see pictures, I suppose, over the news over the next couple of days of uh, Michal Martin, of Leo Varadkar, of Mary Lou MacDonald walking around the ploughing, stopping for selfies and all that sort of stuff. You can't avoid what people are saying to you when you're walking around the ploughing. And if you're at a cost of living crisis or you have a budget coming up next week, as the government do, they get it right in their face. Yeah. And you have a coming together of people from all across the country. It isn't just the people of a particular area, i.e. Rathniska in Strabali County Leash. It's people from absolutely everywhere. And it's a real coming together of all of those different views. They're all blaring at the government. The government often tries to make agriculture the focus of it because naturally enough. Uh, but it's just it's just a whole, it's a smorgasbord <laughs> of sight, sound and colour. 400,000 people down in a field in Rathniska. That's more people than, you know, attended the queue for, for, for Her Majesty the Queen. Many people went to Garth Brooks. Uh, and many people who went to go see <laughs> Garth Brooks. So these are all a very large numbers. overlap of, the, of that category as well. Um, and Zara, <laughs> you've been there though. And I, I seem to remember previous years where you went where the weather was uh, pretty appalling. Oh. Uh, so yeah. it's actually unfortunate that you missed it this week because it the seems last to be one. very dry. Was that 2019, the last one that happened? Yeah. Was that 2019? I'm trying to remember. I remember we went down to do the ploughing like that year and it turned into, instead of it being a ploughing story, the ploughing was called off and it turned into a weather event, like a massive weather event. We ended up doing kind of lives all day on the weather and nearly being kind of blown out of the field. Yeah, I mean, look, the ploughing is huge in terms of, uh, Richard's touched on it there, but look, it is an enormous, it's not just people from rural Ireland who go to this, it's, you know, from urban everything. Like it's a real, it's a real mix. And it's, I kind of, you know, when you look at the the shopping and I suppose the the kind of the trade show element of it, like, you know, it's almost sort of like a pop-up Dundrum sort of (laughs) 
in the middle of in the middle of a field in terms of like the trading and the business that goes on. And people, a lot of business make a lot of money at the ploughing every week as well, or on on the week itself as well. And you know, there's a waiting list often to get to get your sort of stall in there. So look, it is a huge um, melting pot of kind of Irish culture coming together. I think uh, at that weekly um, or that annual yeah, event, the, the, so it's a big sure, deal. Sure, ploughing now definitely. in New York. It's basically the same thing, but on a global scale. I mean, they, that's what they're calling training. this diplomatic ploughing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. This uh, is it. Make sure you get Simon Coley to describe it as such when he's chairing the UN's uh, Security Council or whatever it is uh, over the course of the week. Um, that trade show element, though, yeah. is enormous because it's always a very good bellwether of how rural industry is doing. Yeah, and if you see people doing good trade there, mm. you know the country is doing it on okay footing. But if you see people holding back or maybe they don't feel like they've got the same scope to spend as they previously did, that will be a sign of just how much cost of living is biting rural industry. And that will be fascinating to Great see point. when all of this has packaged up as well. Um, in the couple of minutes that we have left, um, Richard, you are, um, without a shadow of a doubt, the coolest person of the three of us. Uh, and I, I don't say that with any sense of self-flagellation. The camera lens. Um, People's like, reactions. De- that definitely that, that bloke me, and Gavin, me and Gavin know um, this. We're well, fine I mean, about Zara it. obviously yeah. is a noted video game fiend, but we've decided to let you uh, round off by explaining to us what is the significance of Grand Theft Auto 6 and the fact that it's already on Twitter. Grand Theft Auto 6. So Grand Theft Auto, people have heard of Grand Theft Auto. If you've never even heard of video games, you'll have heard of Grand Theft Auto for controversial reasons about, you know, what you can do in the game. Yeah. Grand Theft Auto is the biggest entertainment and media product anywhere in the world. It is bigger than any Marvel film. It is bigger than any book, any TV show. In terms of overall sales, Grand Theft Auto 5, the last one, which came out nine years ago, uh, racked up $6 billion. $6 billion. So if you think it's the highest grossing movie of all time, it's something like 1.5, maybe. Sorry, actually, actually, I think Avatar is something like 2 point something. But still, 2 point something. But but that's 2 billion, and Grand Theft Auto 5 is $6 billion. Yes. So, nine years on from the last one, there's been a lot of such hushed whispers about what, when is Grand Theft Auto 6 coming out. And Rockstar Games, which is the, pro- the company that makes this, has kept an incredibly tight lid on it. And has released a lot of... Until. Until the moment where it was leaked and put up online uh, by a guy who claims to have also done a leak at Uber very recently. Uh, and why this is important is that it, you never see this happening at, on a scale like this. Uh, and for a community which is as fervent as online gaming people are, they were tearing it to shreds saying this looks half finished because apparently it was very early in the development process. Mm. They're seeing all these footage of the game, all these images. Well, and all I'm sure it was literally half finished at the time. Yes, yeah. well, and now the, the big problem is that you have a product which has basically got hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars pumped into it to make it and which could be worth probably even more than Grand Theft Auto V at 6 billion, 8 billion, 10 billion, potentially even if you know how to monetize the way that they do, which is probably going to have a very significant delay. It could be out the far end of this decade now at this point by the time they get to it because there's going to be security checks and who leaked all this sort of stuff. There's going to be, well, people don't like the stuff that they've seen in this game already. They're going to do it. Like you, you can't imagine like uh, Steven Spielberg or a um, um, Star Wars or an Avengers film being mm. stopped or just subjected to such a huge leak, which is just massive implications for the industry. You shared an Instagram meme yesterday about like share your your oldest video game, or your first video game to show your age. I can't imagine this would ever have happened for Super Mario Land on the Game Boy. So that that's how far removed we are from my comfort zone. But my Zara's into Mario. You used to be Mario Kart, weren't you, Mario Kart? Yeah, I uh, yeah yeah I used there to play Mario. Yeah, well I had two cousins. Um, my cousins, the two boys, kind of like if I wanted to hang out with them, I had to get kind of get involved and stuff. So yeah, we played Mario. And my dad bought me a PlayStation when I was a kid. Um, even though I didn't want one, he told my mom that I wanted one, but he actually just wanted it. 
and we ended up Big playing Crash Bandicoot okay. quite a lot. Uh, so huge, yeah, huge but I couldn't <laughs> say I was like a massive gamer, you know. Present I don't want. Uh, we're going to exchange our Rainbow Road memories as soon as we finish up this. We're completely out of time. Uh, thanks for watching or listening in all the usual places. Don't forget to like or subscribe or leave a review on your podcast platform for choice. Set your series link for Virgin Media 2 11 o'clock on Thursday nights. Uh, vote for us in the Stellar Instastar Awards, which I think are possibly still open at the time of airing. So please do that. But until next time, uh, thank you very much, New York Zara King. Thank you very much. Thank you very much in Dublin, News Chambers. Thanks, guys. I don't know why I just referred to you as News Chambers there. It's, it's very, very <laughs> onlining. Uh, and thank you from me, Gavin Riley. We will see you next week on the group chat. Bye, Bye everybody. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.